What's up, y'all? Welcome back to Critical Mass Podcast, the podcast brought to you by the Center for Social Impact at UVU. I'm Hannah, and I'm this year's host. Now, in physics, the term critical mass refers to the minimum amount of material needed to spark a chemical reaction. But in social impact language, we use the term critical mass to talk about the minimum number of people we need in order to create social change or even the initial protest or event that sparks a social movement. Now, this year, the pod's been spotlighting student activists, organizers, and advocates, but this episode is specifically about the climate crisis and student efforts to bring awareness to that issue, specifically here in Utah. But before we get started, I just want to do a quick disclaimer. Critical Mass Podcast is produced by the Center for Social Impact of Utah Valley University. This episode was written and produced by students, so any opinions expressed by our interviewees or even by us don't necessarily reflect the opinions or values of the Center for Social Impact or of UVU. There's been some pretty major recent developments in the area of climate change in recent news, and I feel like some of that is pretty important to talk about before we get to the stuff we got on student climate activists. One of those things happened in early February in a place called East Palestine, Ohio. A train carrying industrial chemicals derailed in a small town and spilled multiple metric tons of chemicals, including vinyl chloride, into the surrounding area. Now, Norfolk Southern, which is a company that owned and operated that train, said that it derailed because of a set of faulty brakes which made the train catch on fire. But bad enough on its own, when burned, that chemical vinyl chloride can release other toxic gases like phosgene and hydrogen chloride, which can cause respiratory illnesses and uncontrollable vomiting. After the spill and subsequent burn, the small town of 5,000 was given short notice to evacuate or face the risk of death. And then later, even after residents were given the green light by authorities to come back home, children started developing rash-like burns on their skin, people started experiencing a bunch of respiratory problems, and small animals were just starting to die. But like most environmental disasters, most of that fallout can only really be measured years after whatever happened. Now, this derailment was not a one-time coincidence. There were over 1,000 train derailments in 2022, and none received the amount of media coverage as the derailment in East Palestine. Earlier this month, a train carrying industrial chemicals derailed here in Utah in the Ogden area, and the media was virtually silent. Underreported environmental disasters are happening all over the country, and one of those is Lake Mead, the reservoir formed by the Hoover Dam a few miles east of Las Vegas. Nearby cities and communities depend on the lake for water and power, but the lake has lost about 5.5 trillion gallons of water since it was at full capacity because of climate change, low snowpack, and poor water management. In fact, the entire Colorado River system, which delivers water to tens of millions of people in the American Southwest, has suffered major droughts in recent years, affecting areas as far as Mexico, even though the use and abuse of the Colorado River in the states means that water from the Colorado River doesn't even actually reach Mexico anymore. And of course, there's the drying up of the Great Salt Lake. The lower water level is causing a disaster in the fragile ecosystem. Brine shrimp, pelicans, and humans alike are set to suffer from this climate disaster. Plus, as more of the salty lake bed is exposed to the atmosphere, strong valley winds blow up the top layer of toxic dust in the air, drastically reducing air quality, which endangers vulnerable communities like children, the elderly, and people with pre-existing conditions, putting them at risk of developing respiratory illnesses as well. It's a shitty thing to talk about so much, but the point I'm really trying to make here is that these catastrophes are the result of an abuse of land. From the perspective of historical colonial power, land has always been viewed as a resources for humans to just use as they wish. Now, exploitation of land can be justified from a religious perspective, using the claim that nature is under human dominion and was created for the use of man, or it can be justified from a capitalist perspective, where natural resources in nature are viewed as commodities to be extracted and sold. But both perspectives are rooted in the idea of manifest destiny, or the idea that early colonists saw it as their duty to spread democracy capitalism and Christianity across the American West. And that was because of something called terra nullius, which basically means territory without a master or unoccupied land. That concept that the West was empty and in need of quote-unquote development is an ideological stance of the colonizing force that was not shared by the indigenous inhabitants of North America. The idea of owning land and changing it or exploiting it was a perversion of the way many indigenous peoples viewed their relationship to land. Prior to colonization, native peoples had cultivated respectful, reciprocal relationships with their local land 
evolving a repository of traditional, cultural, and naturalistic knowledge that was taught to generation after generation all about how to sustainably cultivate and manage their ancestral lands. Collectively, the knowledge and skills Native communities have developed to care for their land is known as land stewardship. Land stewardship is rooted in cultivating a caring, respectful, and reciprocal relationship of land regardless of ownership. It looks like looking out for the land that you live on, taking care not to deplete resources, and to remember that you are not the land's only occupant. The practice of land stewardship is not like some kind of idealized practice that happened in some mythical past. In 2019, the United Nations Global Assessment Report on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services found that, quote, environmental impacts were less severe or avoided in areas held or managed by indigenous peoples and local communities, unquote. Even today, the people most qualified and capable of addressing the issues of 200 years of exploitation are those who were, for thousands of years, living in accordance with the values of land stewardship. While researching this episode, I went back and re-listened to my interview with Danae Shandine from our third episode of this season on Native student activists, and she had this to say about her particular Indigenous perspective on land. Violence takes place on tribal lands and also within urban settings. The jurisdictional processes get really complicated to reach a sense of justice for the families by their perpetrators. Because this crisis is so huge and on different parts of um, Indigenous territories and within more colonized urban spaces, it is really hard to communicate what this violence actually is to the public. And I think because of that lack of awareness and of those systems of approach, approaches that were designed to suppress this kind of information, Mm -hmm. the data is so underfunded, underreported, and that's maintained by all these systems and it's maintained for a purpose. I think it's important for everyone to understand that these systems were intentionally designed to not address this violence. Instead, they perpetuate the violence even further. And a lot of Indigenous advocates, coalitions are trying to undo those systems so that they work for us. Because this crisis is immediate in our everyday lives, our homelands are being continually being destroyed Um, So this violence is ongoing and it's not stopping. So I don't think that there's a lot of hope there. It's just a lot of urgency. Um, A lot of us are dedicating so much of our time, energy and love and our capacities to prevent this from happening. You know, we worry about the, the future that our children will inherit in this if we don't act swiftly and really push for these changes. We're able to really live beautiful and productive lives. Um, under colonization. And so with this perpetuated violence, the public really needs to understand that it's an ongoing and continuation of genocide and that historical oppression on Indigenous people. Mm. It's all connected. It's a violence that continues to be maintained and endured through these systems. We already know as Indigenous people how to address this crisis like we've been screaming it for years and years and years and like I was saying earlier we are the experts of our own realities and traumas and we have very specific ways of healing through these things and those need to be trusted and given the funding the resources right all of those things to address this issue in a sovereign way with sovereignty you know I think about my own body like I have sovereignty over my own body Um, This body is mine. It houses my spirit. It houses many stories. Um, And then I think about land. 
and how I'm connected to land. And land should be sovereign. Land should have its own voice. Land has a way of taking care of itself and all those other relations. And the same with tribal communities. That power will really restore and extend out to all different relatives. You know, I think that non-Indigenous people who are interested in supporting, they already have an understanding of their their settlement in their own histories mm. and their responsibility to undo a lot of the violence that their ancestors contributed to and then their placement occupation on Indigenous land. And so I think it's a, it is a responsibility for all non-Indigenous people who are occupying Indigenous land to um, really pay attention to the needs of our communities. From Danae's perspective, land stewardship is based in a belief in land sovereignty, or the concept that the land knows how to care for and regulate itself, and that we ought to minimize human interference with natural processes that have been existing successfully for generations. And more than this, it's rooted in an idea that land existing as it is has value in and of itself, not only that it has value insofar as it has utility for humans. For Danae, land sovereignty is inextricably linked with land back and indigenous sovereignty precisely because of the way Native peoples tended to emphasize the value of land stewardship in their cultures. One attempt to marry the concept of land stewardship and land sovereignty with our current governmental system is called Rights of Nature. Rights of Nature is a legal strategy introduced by the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund to, quote, secure rights that are necessary to the ability of ecosystems to be healthy and thrive. These laws transform ecosystems from being considered resources available for humans to use to living entities with inherent rights, close quote. Many communities have recognized the validity of rights of nature. Pennsylvania, India, New Zealand, Ecuador, and other places around the world have introduced legislation protecting the rights of nature since 2006. When the rights of nature are codified in law, they are given, quote, personhood rights and recognition of the full rights of rivers and other landmarks to be healthy, natural ecosystems, close quote, rather than simply protection as property. Property protections, which work by regulating how much we can legally extract from nature, are still based on the idea that land and other natural environments are empty, that they are not useful or meaningful unless they can be developed and exploited for human use. Rights of nature reframes the argument entirely, arguing that nature has a right to exist for itself, refuting the idea that natural environments are not useful or meaningful unless they can be developed and exploited for human use. Of course, there are problems and inconsistencies with marrying the two concepts or perspectives, but the effort is meaningful and has had real effects on the safety and protection of landmasses today. Now, I don't want to move away from the topic of Native perspectives without talking about Native activism in the climate arena, because honestly, you can't talk about climate activism and not mention Native activists. Now, everyone's probably heard the quote that Indigenous people make up only 5% of the world's population, but are responsible for protecting 80% of global biodiversity. Now, a major reason for this is because many activists, like Danae, report that Indigenous sovereignty cannot be separated from land back and land sovereignty. So fights for the community become fights to protect that community's ancestral lands. A major and famous example of this is the Dakota Access Pipeline, known as DAPL, which was built to transport crude oil from North Dakota to Illinois. The planned route for this line was under the Missouri and Mississippi rivers in Lake Oahe and just a half mile from the current boundaries of the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. Generally speaking, constructing a pipeline that would carry toxic chemicals through an underrepresented community without that community's consent is generally unethical because having crude oil that close to state and tribal drinking water was a clear health concern. But on top of this, the pipeline was also mapped to run right through important cultural sites and burial 
burial sites for the Standing Rock and other tribal nations. Through methods ranging from public demonstrations to legal actions, the Standing Rock Sioux and other tribes and environmental groups have opposed the pipeline for eight long years now. Now, Standing Rock has been viewed as a rallying cry for native sovereignty and environmental protection since its inception, and was the exception to a general trend of underreporting of native activism in the environmental arena and the media. Local organizations here in Utah, like Pandos, an indigenous-founded and led organization that fights for indigenous sovereignty and cultural revitalization, follow the spiritual lead of hashtag StopDAPL, incorporating environmental justice into their broader mission of the pursuit of native justice and sovereignty. But they're not the only ones. There's always native activism that happens on the ground and in communities that media doesn't necessarily cover, and the communities affected are usually the last ones to be asked about how they feel about what's going on. But when you can't find those activists online, you can certainly find them on the ground, doing the legwork, showing up for their community, and fighting a fight that for them isn't really one that you can opt in or out of. But they're not the only ones. Students all over the world have a long history being invested in the future of the climate, and one dope local example of this is Fridays for Future. Now, Fridays for Future is a youth-led and organized global climate strike movement that started in August 2018 when a 15-year-old Greta Thunberg led a school strike for climate justice. In the three weeks leading up to the Swedish election, she sat outside the Swedish parliament every school day demanding urgent action on the climate crisis. Initially, she was alone, but she was soon joined by others, and together they created the hashtag Fridays for Future and encouraged other young people all over the world to join them. This marked the beginning of the global school strike for climate. The call for action sparked an international awakening with students and activists uniting around the globe to protest outside their local parliaments and city halls. In a section on the organization's website called Civil Disobedience is Effective, Fridays for Future say that, quote, collective action helps us cope with climate anxiety and worry. Striking together brings us hope, and it really does lead to direct change. We learn this much in the history classes you say we should be in. Fridays for Future is powerful. There is a better life on the other side of the crisis, close quote. Fridays for Future's demands include action to keep global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Their primary message is that no matter what happens, it is never too late. There are always better and worse futures to be had, and they believe in fighting for better futures, even when that fight is uncomfortable or not socially acceptable. So in the spirit of direct action, every Friday, students involved with the Utah chapter of Fridays for Future strike at the Capitol from 2 to 4 p.m., carrying signs and speaking to passersby about the importance of legislative intervention with the climate crisis. Recently, though, those students helped put together a global climate strike event on Friday, March 3rd, where protesters marched from Washington Square Park all the way to the state capitol where they rallied in support of saving the Great Salt Lake, as well as for intersectional racial and environmental justice. Now, I had the opportunity to speak with two of the students involved with the Utah chapter of Fridays for Future, Raquel and Ava, and that's what y'all are about to hear right now. I started with Fridays for Future back in 2018 and would strike at the state capitol every Friday. There was an event and then I heard about it and then I started striking the week after, uh, but no one was there and I was a little confused. And so I did that by myself for like seven weeks during my last year in high school and pretty much realized as people start to realize that there's someone there, there's committed people who have sat by me throughout the years we're still striking every friday i remember that that's how i found y'all was on instagram and i feel like your kind of signature post is that like y'all are really up there at the capitol every friday Uh, i feel like that's a really major commitment that kind of drew me to want to interview you guys can you talk to me a little bit about that and like what's what's it like being up there it's a good opportunity to talk to like-minded people for a couple hours 
cool. um, which is really energizing and really gets you wanting to like continue um, advocacy. And yeah, a lot of times we have people come that have a lot of wisdom to share with us. So we'll be learning and then we'll be talking to random people that walk by the Capitol often want to say something to us or are asking why we're there. So I kind of see it as a way to educate people. Do you have like any specific memories or something of talking to people where you feel like maybe you changed their minds or like maybe you learned something about about why you go up there that made it like meaningful to you? Um, yeah, I think there there's definitely two sides. There's people who will give you their opinion and aren't going to listen to what you have to say. Mm. And there's people who are genuine and are curious about what you're doing and can look back and just sort of observe what we've told them that what we're doing. And then there's people who want to know more about what we're doing as an organization because they're already invested and know about the issue. And I think it gives them... I've, I've talked to numerous people who they say we give them inspiration and hope for the future because there's people putting time in it outside of their daily activities. Yeah, I would say pretty similarly. Um, definitely most people are in supportive. They'll honk and wave or give a thumbs up or something. Mm-hmm. And every now and again, you do get to have a conversation with people. Um, yeah, a lot of times people come at, with from a genuine place of curiosity, um, like, why are you spending your time this way, that kind of stuff. Um, every now and again, of course, you get negative reactions, just like anything. But I would say, for the most part, most people are very supportive of what we're doing. And most people either just, and most people just want to learn why we're up there. Have you guys ever had, like, somebody walk up to you and then later join you after, like, learning about what y'all do? Some people, it's sort of not their thing because I think their expectation of a strike in the movies is they see big rallies and a lot of energy. And this is a little different in that we're sitting down and, you know quiet and talking quietly with each other and we're really not making a ruckus we have a little old lady named judy who strikes with us and she carries her oxygen tank and she sits there with us in environmentalism there's a place for everyone in the movement um political act like striking is not gonna be everyone's thing organizing is not gonna be everyone's thing but there's tons of events. I recently went to an event where, for the Great Salt Lake where people had donated artwork as a fundraiser. And there were dancers. So it's really, um, I would say I'm not necessarily motivated to have people join us, although I'd love to have more people there, of course. But just to be thinking about it and figure out where they belong in the movement. Because there is a place for everyone. And I feel like... Yeah, there's just a lot of variety of what you can do. Absolutely. I love that because I feel like people have a very specific idea of like what organizing looks like and what it means to be like 
someone who cares about all of this stuff. And I think that things like this kind of reverse that misconception. Why do you guys think that Fridays for Future is important specifically here in Utah? So Utah has some of the worst air pollution in the country. Um, In fact, a study published by Dr. Ben Abbott from BYU said that it decreases two years of our lifespan for the average Utahn, and it's significantly worse for some communities, especially those communities of color on the west side of Salt Lake. Um, So I think air pollution is one of the main things we need to be concerned about in the state, as well as the Great Salt Lake. Um, As a lot of people probably know, the Great Salt Lake is drying, and even if we do have record snowfall one year, a lake like that would need, like, 10, 15 years of this kind of snow to really recover. Um, So it's really important that we're raising awareness of these issues and that we're um, rallying around our local issues and the things that are happening in our communities. I absolutely agree with you. That is not long-winded. That's like exactly, I think, like what why I care about it because communities are being impacted in like lived ways right now. Um, And uh, and I think that seeing uh, environmentalism as like an an intersectional uh, issue is like a really important part of why action is so urgent. Yeah, I think there there's a misconception in the environmental movement that it's just about the environment, partly because the title is deceiving in that we can't put all these intersectionalities of issues within it because it includes racial justice as well, LGBTQ justice, um, among many others, animal justice, agriculture, you know, all these things are involved. People of color, um, the South, the global South, are going to be hit first when it comes to to the environment um, being destroyed. Is is those communities are going to be hit first and more than likely the hardest. You really can't exploit the planet without first exploiting people, and to do that, we've created the idea that some people are more valuable than others, or that their lives mean more, and we. We choose to, it's a, everything about environmental racism is an intentional choice. The, it's intentional that communities of colors live on the west side, and it's intentional that's where the worst air pollution is. That's where we put factories, that's where we put the major freeways. Um, yeah, so I would say that one of the first steps to addressing the climate crisis is to address address these issues of injustice and to really look at when you're looking to implement something like let's say you're looking to implement a new solar project you think about what communities would this help most and you want to make sure that the communities that are most impacted those frontline communities are the people that are receiving these new technologies first why do you guys think that some people don't really want to talk about or believe in climate change and other environmental issues? I think um, any I think that it's very there's a cognitive dissonance when you realize you're part of the problem. Hmm. Um, the way we all live, none of us live very sustainably in this country, and we all 
And to learn about climate change is to learn about your own responsibility and that you're part of the problem. Um, and then as you continue to learn more, you start to realize that you're, you're living in a system, but you're also a victim of that system. And it's the system that needs to change, not you. But I think when you first start, you feel like the way I, I live and everyone I, li I love lives is wrong or needs to change. And people are really are really uncomfortable with the idea that they need that their lives need to somehow shift. So I think it becomes very easy to ignore something that makes you feel uncomfortable or that makes you feel like you need to change or you need to do something. Um, so I think it just it's easier for people to ignore it than to want to than to realize that everything about their lives and everything about the system we live under needs to change. I think a lot of times you need to think of really locally, like maybe the legislature isn't in session, but is your community council in session? Could you talk to them about fixing the broken sprinkler heads in your public park? Just to, once you start thinking about some small things you could do, um, it starts becoming a little more doable. What brings you the most hope for the future working with Fridays for Future? Yeah, I think what brings me a lot of hope is the community and the people fighting for change, as well as while there's a lot of doom and gloom around environmental issues, as there should be, there are good things happening. And I feel like a lot of times we don't hear about the good things that are happening. Um, like, for example, the legislator this year passed a bill, I think the governor's still waiting to sign it, but he should, um, HB 217 that gave $10 million for schools to implement clean energy. And I feel like a lot of times, even if it's a relatively small win like that, something that I feel like just thinking about the wins and what we have done, or like another example is Utah used to have worse air quality than it did, than it does now. Um, when we used to burn coal to heat our homes instead of natural gas. Um, so things have, certain things have gotten better, which I think reminds me that it's not impossible. You know, we've done it before on a lot of things. So it's a lot of these, it's not impossible and we've seen change before and we'll see it again. This late in the semester, working at the center and on this podcast, I've been exposed to a lot of material in the world of social impact that's given me every reason to want to quit. And this far into the episode, after all this talk of horrible climate-related events that are the direct result of human irresponsibility, I just get bummed out, and I wonder how much my small contribution really matters. But that's a common reaction to the news of climate change. Climate doomerism is one of the most common reactions to climate change, which basically relies on the idea that we are well past the point of being able to do anything at all about global warming, and that mankind is highly likely to become extinct. So, like, what's the point of taking all this action anyways. People who fall into the trap of climate doomerism may claim that they're only being realistic, but really climate doomerism is just another form of climate denial. It's a way to avoid the issue by framing it as a lost cause, and it's just as wrong as denying climate change altogether. But the feelings behind climate doomerism are very real, and I do want to talk about that a little bit. But to do that, we're going to refer to those feelings as climate fatigue, because fatigue doesn't mean it's all some sort of unwinnable battle. It means those feelings are part of the natural exhaustion that comes from a long battle. 
Honestly, moral decisions related to the climate are never as simple as they seem, and a lot of major stakeholders in the climate arena are going to try their hardest to convince us that climate change was caused and can be fixed by the average individual by doing things like taking shorter showers, biking to work, or going vegan. But the truth is that major businesses, governmental entities, and corporations have the most influence on what changes occur in the climate on a broader scale. That doesn't mean that none of our personal decisions matter. Our feelings of fatigue and hopelessness aren't crazy. They're really a sign of something deeper, something like grief, and our native relatives know all too much about grief in relation to land loss. Since settler colonials set foot on the North American continent, native peoples have been forcibly and systematically denied access to their ancestral lands. Now, obviously, there is a world of difference between the trauma of colonization and the trauma of climate change, but what I'm trying to say here is that the relentless resilience and persistent efforts of native climate activists, and yeah, even of student strikers like Raquel and Ava, indicate that there's something left to fight for. And as long as those people care, I know that I gotta keep caring too, because it's really all that we can do. And I get it, for the everyday person, we really don't need another list of major climate nonprofits that we can look up and volunteer for. What we need is a shift in values and frameworks and real honest ways to cope with the present so that we can become invested in the climate as it is now. So yeah, let's recognize the grief and the fatigue and let's take care of ourselves. But what we shouldn't do is disengage from the fight. And that is climate hope. Realistically, the environmental impact of taking a shorter shower in the morning or riding your bike to work instead of driving may be relatively small, but it's not entirely meaningless. Climate Hope is all about small wins and the way we connect with the world when we bike versus drive by feeling the weather on our skin or actually hearing the noises that happens outside. That's about cultivating a relationship with where you live and saving the piece of world that you do have control over. I can't do much that's meaningful for East Palestine from my home in Utah County, but when I meet the world and I know my city or my town, it means I'm invested in its well-being the same way I might be for a friend. It means that when a train derails in my city, I'm going to have a reason to care and to fight and to protect that land that I've lived on and grown from. It's about remembering why we care about the climate, remembering that the climate doesn't just exist far away in the Arctic, but that it's also the ants in my backyard and the grass in my neighborhood park, and that it's not just some mountain out there, but it's the place that's right outside my front door right here. It's about recognizing birds and knowing their names just so you can say hi, and knowing as much as you can about local plant life just because you're curious. And I get that that doesn't really seem like much, but we're all just people, and the scale of the world and everything on it is bigger than we can really understand in a single thought. But if we scale down and see the vastness of the universe that exists just on our street, maybe the respect that is so missing with how we interact with the world now is something that we can find again. And when it feels like every decision is meaningless, that's really when those decisions are the most meaningful, because that's all that there is. This was kind of a hard episode to get through because this topic is one that really matters to me. And that's why this episode was a bit of a shorter one, but talking about it was easily really worth it. There's still enough left of the world for us to try and make every effort to know it and to love it so we'll care enough to save it. Well, anyways, big thanks to everyone involved with the production of this episode. Our researchers, Kenna, Carolina, and Ari, scriptwriters, Danny and Cap, sound editors and our engineers, Sophie, Braden, and Jaden, our interviewees, past and present, Raquel, Ava, and Danae. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening. So if we said anything that's interesting to you, please check out the citations we got linked in our show notes. Now, the Center for Social Impact is located in the Student Wellness Building in SC105, right across from the Big Ballroom. We have events every Thursday, so check us out on Instagram at UVU Social Impact to find out what we're doing every week. Critical Mass releases episodes monthly, so come back next month and listen to our final episode of the semester. Thanks again, guys. I'm Hannah, and y'all were listening to Critical Mass Podcast. Critical Mass Podcast.